0: Hey co-conspirators, my name is Mackenzie. And I'm Fatina. That's where you're supposed to sit. Oh, no I see. <laughs> oh, leave that in, leave that in.
1: And you are listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast.
0: I'm so <laughs> laughing. We clearly have this down. We are professionals. Welcome
1: to episode number two. This one is going to be led by Mackenzie. Hey, she has told me who it's about. I know I know very little about this person. I know maybe one or two things. and I kept myself together and did not Google anything. So I am very excited to hear everything that you dug up on this guy.
0: Yeah, and so was it here's the challenge of a true crime podcast is following up with your lesser-known Luca Magnata. I wanted to do something that was a little bit more high-profile, but also something that you didn't know a lot about. Those two don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> there is not a lot that is high-profile that you don't know about. Today we are going to be talking about Rodney Alcala, a.k.a. the dating game killer.
1: See, I knew that part. I've, I've seen the clip of... I'm sure you'll get. you're going to get to it. I've seen the clip of him... On On the the, dating game show? On the dating show. Yeah.
0: So we'll get into that, but I felt like this one was really appropriate given my my dating history. (laughs) It's super successful. and this would be something that totally happened to me. Okay, anywho, so Rodney Alcala. Uh, Rodney James Alcala was born on August 23rd, 1943. He was born in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, Dad's name was Raul Alcala Bucuar, and mom was Ana Gutierrez, or sorry, Ana Maria Gutierrez. His dad moved the family to Mexico in 1951. Rodney was about eight years old at the time, and then abandoned them about three years later after that. So, he takes off, um, and at that point, his mom moves his siblings and him to Los Angeles and ends up raising them as a single mother. Mm, okay. Now, obviously, you can have your theories about how daddy issues may have affected him. Already. (laughs) Um, But he was about 11 years old when his dad takes off. So, up until that time, dad has been present in his life, and then mom takes over from there okay now he ends up joining the army when he's about 17 years old um, he's in 1960 and at that point he serves as a clerk in the army four years later he's about 21 at this point he has what is described as a nervous breakdown he ends up going AWOL and is found hitchhiking from Fort Bragg to his mom's house he is at that point diagnosed by a military psychiatrist with antisocial personality disorder, and he's medically discharged from the Army. Wow. And he's still, at this point, just a kid. Like he's, yeah, he's 21. 21. Yeah. Without the Army still being an option, he attends and graduates from the UCLA School of Fine Arts in 1968. And at this point, he's about 25 years old, and this is the same year that he commits his first known crime. Oh. Tally Shapiro... Uh, she was eight years old and she was walking to school. Oh, sorry. and sorry. How old? She was eight. Here's the crazy That's thing hard. about Rodney Alcala is that most serial killers have a, a type, right? right? They have a certain profile that they work with. Like either
1: age or gender. Right. Or
0: age, profession. gender. I mean, Ted Bundy had it right down to the part in her hair. Like, it had to be parted down the middle. But he's kind of all over the place with age, but still seems to preference younger girls. Okay. So Tally's eight years old. She's walking to school in Hollywood. Rodney stops to offer her a ride. She tells him that she's not supposed to talk to strangers, and he says that he's a friends, friends with her parents. In an article I read, she said that she trusted it because she was just a kid at the time. So she was sure. like, if you're a friend of my parents, then okay, she's like, I, I believe adults. You're this was an adult telling an adult. me. Right. Yeah. So she said she trusted this and got in his car and he took her back to his Hollywood apartment. So all of these details are recounted from Tally because at this point she is alive. She does have this memory and she has given this recollection before. Tally said that when she was at the apartment complex, the last thing she remembers is him saying he wanted to show her a picture. Um, she's walking up to the apartment with him when she loses her memory. Now, in the meantime, Someone driving had noticed his car because it had no license plate on it. Sees the car following Tally and stopping and talking to her. And whoever this person is thought it was odd. Was like, something's not right. Okay. So witnesses this whole interaction, witnesses the girl getting into the car, taking off with this car with no plates. That person follows him. To his apartment. Good for him. And realizes like something's not right, so follows him to the apartment, and calls it into LAPD, and is not able to give the location because he's followed Rodney and Tally to the apartment. Wow,
1: that's awesome. I know. Called it in and said, "Hey, I just saw this happen." But he actually followed him and like gave him the
0: location and says like, "This is what's going on." Right, and if he's watches them walk into the apartment, then he can give them an apartment number and everything. Wow. Documentary that I watched was 48 Hour Mystery, the killing game episode. The officer that originally arrived at the location knocks on the door. He said that Rodney Alcala opened the door. And he said that it was like staring into the face of pure evil. He said, I'm just getting out of the shower. Hold on. He said, you have 10 seconds. And then... Dude doesn't open the door back up. So the officer ends up kicking in the door.
1: Does that give him, like, probable cause? Obviously, someone's reported a kid going in. Okay.
0: Well, and actually, I don't know if it gave him probable cause or not, as much as either that wasn't a thing at the time or he didn't care. They said that Tally was on the kitchen floor, unconscious, raped and beaten with a steel bar, including blows to the back of the head, the steel bar he had used to try and choke her and strangle her. But a lot happened in obviously a very short amount of time. Right. So by the time the cops kicked in the door, he had taken off out the back door. And they thought that she was dead. And while they were collecting evidence, she started to choke. And they realized that she was alive. So they ended up getting her the medical attention that she needed. She ends up surviving it. Um, She needs 27 stitches in the back of her head alone. Um, But at this point, Rodney Alcala is gone. He has fled out the back door and takes off to New York. And he enrolls at New York University Film School under the name John Berger. During this time, he also starts working at an all girls summer camp under the name John Berger. So, dude's hiding in plain sight. Like, he's on right. FBI Most Wanted. Everybody's looking for him. He's making no efforts to hide. All he's done is change his name.
1: And I'm assuming this apartment was something under his name, maybe, so they knew. Who oh, yeah, it was. they knew
0: exactly who okay. they were looking for. So he goes to New York, changes his name, starts working under a different name, goes to school under a different name. I mean, he doesn't change anything about his appearance at this point, but he's going on as per usual. So he's off in New York in 1971. Two campers recognize their counselor, John Berger, as the man on the FBI wanted poster in the local post office. And they notify the camp directors he is arrested and extradited back to california but Tally shapiro and her family had relocated relocated to mexico at this point and her parents refused to let her testify so at that point prosecutors were forced to negotiate a plea deal and rodney pleads guilty to child molestation that's he, it that's it
1: not the assault. not kidnapping
0: not assault not anything because their victim is gone okay. yeah So that's the plea deal. He agrees to plead guilty to that. Um, He's sentenced to one year to life. And this was under the indeterminate sentencing program that they had back during that time, which means that they could be sentenced to anything. It wasn't a judge who decides how long they served. It's the parole board who decides how long they serve. And this is based on rehabilitation. So if the parole board deems you rehabilitated, air quotes, then they can choose at any time to release you. So one year to life. At any point, the parole board can decide that you are rehabilitated enough to be released. A judge does not make the call.
1: Wow, and that's no longer the
0: case. I'm assuming. No, that is no longer the case. I've
1: never heard one to life. I hadn't
0: either, um, and I hadn't ever heard of this type of sentencing. um, But they referred to it as like, this becomes an issue in this case. Okay. So, he's sentenced to one to life under the indeterminate sentencing program. It allows the parole boards to release offenders as soon as they demonstrate evidence of rehabilitation. Rodney serves 34 months and is paroled in 1974. So, two months later, Rodney is arrested on a parole violation for providing marijuana to a 13-year-old girl. There are differing accounts published of what happened here, so I ended up actually just pulling the court transcript... I know, she's fancy, huh? And the victim is identified only as Julie J. She testified that she was waiting for a bus to go to school in Huntington Beach, again, on her way to school. Mm -hmm. And Rodney approached her and said his name was John Ronald. Like Tali Shapiro, he convinced her to let him take her to school. He drove past her school and refused dropping her off. Um, Even though she said that she asked him to let her out, he keeps driving, refuses to drop her off at school, um, and he takes her to some cliffs overlooking the ocean on the Pacific Coast Highway. He's still, obviously, in California, Huntington Beach area. She said she tried to leave, but he grabbed her and said that he offered her weed and she complied because she was afraid of him. He then kissed her and said that he wanted to be passionate.
1: To a 13-year-old? Yeah. And he is... Well into his mid twenties. Yeah, he's now. into his mid twenties okay. at
0: this point. The police ended up actually responding and they arrested the two for smoking marijuana. She told the police that he had kidnapped her, but he was never charged with this. Sorry, I'm just looking at you like I know. Why Your not? face is hilarious. That is the underlying theme throughout all of this, and Tally Shapiro makes some like really badass comments at the end about Everything that happened and all of these failed instances where all this could have been stopped. He ended up spending another two years in prison for providing marijuana to this underage girl while he's on parole.
1: Okay, so they did get him for something.
0: Yeah, they get him for something. But again, he is sentenced under the indeterminate sentencing program. Goodness. So he's released in 1977, um, after serving the two years, and he returns to Los Angeles. Despite his record as a registered sex offender, he gets a job as a typesetter for the Los Angeles Times, and this is during their coverage of the Hillside Stranglers. But they also said that he did photography and that kind of stuff for them. Him being a photographer is part of this story. Oh, okay. So he, he goes to film school, he does all this stuff, so... Um, and the police said that when they went to his apartment for the Tally Shapiro situation, that there were a lot of photographs there of underage girls. So oh the photos c- continue to be kind of an issue. A year later, this is when Rodney O'Kella appears on The Dating Game, and he's introduced as a successful photographer. Good luck, gentlemen. Well, let's see. Bachelor number one is a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the dark room at the age of 13
1: fully developed <laughs> between tapes he might find him skydiving or motorcycling please welcome rodney Alcala. Rod
0: so actually now that i'm thinking about it yeah creepy as fuck right Ooh, that he says shit. that now that we know what was about to happen or what did happen prior to this uh his response is even that much more terrifying so Here's Rodney Alcala's first response. And we're going to start by having them say hello to you and see how they sound. Number one, would you say hello to Cheryl, please? We're going to have a great time together, Cheryl. Uh. Oh. He is a felon and a registered sex offender, but apparently nobody does background checks on the dating game. They said the contestants on the show, one of them has spoken out, the other one refuses to. Okay. For good reason. So, one of them said that he was very strange and said that his opinions on different things were, quote, bizarre. But the Bachelorette ends up picking him as the winner. So, he actually wins the show. Which is crazy to me. So, yeah, the point is that she picks the winner and they're supposed to go on a date. But then, she ends up refusing to go out with him and says that he's creepy. So, she won't go out on the date with him after she picks him as the winner. Now criminal profilers have kind of pegged this as a moment of escalation. So they said that based on the rejection that he felt, oh. because it was so public, that he, like, won the dating game and everything like that, and then I don't think she refused, like, on national television, but they were supposed to follow up with their oh, date. they do
1: follow-ups.
0: I don't know if they did at the time, oh, but, like, okay. family and friends would have known, like, that kind of stuff. Like, that they nothing ended up coming of it. But because of that situation and the rejection that he felt. The profilers believe that this was a point of like feeling rejected, yeah, and it triggers an escalation. That was in 1978 that he was on the show. So that takes us to June 20th, 1979. Rodney Alcala is free on bail pending a trial for the kidnapping and rape of a 15 year old girl. I have looked everywhere for information about who this 15 year old girl is, what the circumstances were behind this. And I have kind of come up empty handed. So if anybody has like can fill in the blanks for me on this particular one, let me know like DM me, hit me up on the Instagram, email me because I, this one's driving me crazy because when I look at all the timelines and everything, she's the only one missing from the timelines
1: I wonder if there's like a protection thing. That yeah, and I don't file, know if he it.
0: actually ever went to trial for this. Like he was waiting oh, trial. He was out on bail. Yeah, he's out saying. on bail. He's awaiting trial, but then there's no follow up, so I don't know what ends up happening with this case. I don't know what was going on here, huh. but there was another 15 year old girl involved in all of this that right. he was accused of raping and kidnapping. He's out on bail for this. This whole instance with the 15 year old had happened four months prior to 12-year-old Robin Samso disappearing on her way to ballet school. Point of being is that he shouldn't have been walking on the streets, but once again, he was. And Robin and her friend Bridget were down at Huntington Beach, um, and they were having a cartwheel competition. Oh,
1: my gosh.
0: Wholesome AF. Oh,
1: my gosh. I know.
0: Bridget had said that she thought it would be fun if they could go have a cartwheel competition. So that's what they were doing, their 12 and so while they're at the beach, he approaches them and asks to take their picture. Says something about like they're he's in school for photography or he oh, works so for this a magazine. Is a
1: thing. Yeah. Then he's walking around with the camera. So he
0: asks to take his picture. Bridget says that Robin was comfortable having her picture taken. She was like, Yeah, okay. Sure. And then out of nowhere, Bridget's neighbor pops up and is like, Is everything okay? Are you girls okay? Like, she just happens to be on the beach at the same time. Bridget, the friend, said that at this point, Rodney hit his face and takes off. So he, like, turns away away. from the woman and takes off. And that they were a little rattled after the whole situation. Seeing how quickly he takes off, they realize something is wrong. They decide that they are going to go back to Bridget's house. They get to the house, but Robin still has to go to her ballet class. She is on like a a trade with them. Like she does some work for them for ballet classes. So she needs to go there to actually work. But she's nervous about going there by herself with everything that's just happened. So Bridget loans her her bike and says, here, take my bike, just ride as fast as you can. Right. Don't mm-hmm. stop. She never makes it to class. Oh. I know, it's stress stresses me out there are so many opportunities where like I so when I was watching this and like reading all of this I'm like oh okay so this is where it ends oh no it's not gonna okay so this is where it ends oh oh no it's not gonna end and then like you keep thinking there's a resolution and then it keeps getting worse and you're like how is this happening like he should have been like back in jail with the Tally Shapiro thing Okay, so Robin never makes it to ballet class. The ballet teacher calls um her parents and says that she has never arrived and the parents call the police right away. Her brothers ride their bikes all over looking for her all night long. Can't oh, find her no anywhere. Guys. Do you know how old they are? Uh, I do not. Okay. I know that they are they're older. Sure. They're older than her, but I don't know how much. Right. Bridget reports the interaction about the photographer and gives a description of Alcala. The drawing they put together is like spot on. Uh, Her body is found 12 days later, 40 miles away in the Los Angeles foothills. Her mom asks to identify the body and they tell her no. And mom can't figure out why. Eventually somebody has to break the news to mom that animals have gotten to the body (gasps) before police. So all that is left of the body is bones at this point. Yeah, so not even two weeks, Um, but it's in the foothills, so animals have done what they do, yeah. The police release the sketch to the media based off of Bridget's description, and his parole officer is actually the one who recognizes him. And this is, I believe this is the parole officer that is assigned to him after the Tally Shapiro incident. He is arrested on July 24th, which is just a little bit over a month uh, after her disappearance. At this point, he is arrested, and his sister comes to visit him in jail. The conversation is being recorded, but as we all know. <laughs> so his sister comes to visit him. Um, conversation's being recorded. He mentions at that point that he has a storage locker in Seattle. Whoa, and
1: that's a big jump. I know. Okay.
0: He gets it around the same time that this girl goes missing, that Robin Samso goes missing. He asks the sister to clean it out, but the police are one step ahead. So while the legal system fails us a little bit, the police are on it. They, at this point, have already executed a search warrant of his house. They find the receipt for the storage locker, and they have executed a search warrant for the storage locker. Yeah,
1: that's awesome. Okay.
0: They, at that point, Recover hundreds, if not thousands, of photos of women. Uh, sexually explicit photos. Underage photos. Sexually explicit and underage photos. And in this locker are also Robin's earrings and a little pouch.
1: Do they know what the earrings look like? Do you have any pictures of that?
0: Yeah, so mom actually identified the earrings. Robin's mom oh, identifies okay. the earrings.
1: Oh, that must have been hard. Yeah.
0: So, in February 1980, he goes on trial and is convicted for the kidnapping and murder of Robin Samso and is sentenced to death. Now, you might think this is where things end, but you would be wrong. His sentence is overturned on the basis that he was not given a fair trial, saying that it was not fair that the jury was made aware of his previous sex crimes. And that that somehow swayed them.
1: That wouldn't have swayed them if there was enough evidence. I for know.
0: Robin. I know. So he's retried and reconvicted in 1986, and again sentenced to death. Oh, okay. But the verdict is overturned again <laughs> <laughs> in 2001. In 2001. In 2001. I mean, it seems recent. I know it's it is because but... this keeps going on. Okay, so 2001. We're not even close to being done at this point. Really? I know. He's literally been arrested and convicted of how many things on how many different occasions, and this is... So
1: my question is, why did it get overturned the second time
0: for... This This one one was weird to me. It had something to do... It had something to do with the park ranger that discovered the body. I don't... I literally could not make sense of it. I don't know. Okay, so... It was some BS reason, basically. So it gets overturned again in 2001. He must have
1: some good-ass lawyers, then, to be bringing up such
0: bogus I am so glad you said that. Because prosecutors enter a motion to retry Alcala along with four newly identified victims in 2003. Hold the thought about him having really good lawyers. Just... Okay. Put a pin in that, if you will. <laughs> uh, by this time, DNA testing has significantly improved. So they get a sample of his DNA despite his obvious, like, complaints and refusals about that.
1: I think California was the first state that anyone who has been convicted of a felony you doesn't can. have an option. Yeah, They automatically take a sample and they will
0: cross-check it with past crimes so yay california right so and this is at this point 2003 right now despite his conviction being overturned he's still in jail this or in prison this whole time so in 2003 they are prosecuting him a total of five victims um, they have tested his DNA, and they've linked him to the rape and murder of Jill Barcombe, who was 18, when she was found in a Los Angeles ravine in 1977. Um, originally, investigators thought she was a victim of the Hillside Strangler, but DNA evidence obviously proved otherwise. Georgia Wixted um, was 27. She was beaten to death in her apartment in 1977. Charlotte Lamb was 31 when she was raped, strangled, and left in a laundry room in El Segundo. Well, um, that's
1: different than his younger age.
0: Right, so that's why I said victims. he. It's literally all over the place with ages. I think he just prefers the younger ones.
1: I wonder if those were just ones where he had gone long stretches without having a, a younger victim and Maybe. just took the opportunity where he could.
0: Well, and it's weird because so much happens in apartment complexes. So, like. Um, Georgia happened in an apartment complex. Charlotte Lamb, um, the one we just talked about, her was left in a laundry room in an El Segundo apartment complex in These
1: 1978.
0: Busy places. Yeah. Um, Jill Parento was 21 when she was killed in her apartment in Burbank in 1979. Yeah. The Tally Shapiro thing happened at his apartment. So apartments... Are a thing here, but He's I... He's familiar and comfortable with the... Maybe, maybe he was living in the same complexes and bouncing around. I have no idea. But the semen that was collected at these scenes were linked to Rodney, um, along with DNA from another pair of earrings found in his storage locker was that, that his... matched one of the victims, Charlotte Lamb, who was the um, 31-year-old that was left in the laundry room.
1: So this was clearly his way of collecting
0: oh yeah and they showed like a lot of the earrings there like while some of them didn't have dna like there was there was a lot of earrings oh wow um on one of the evidence tables they laid out several different pairs so i think those were kind of the trophies that he was taking i wonder if
1: were they all dangly
0: earrings some of them were um the the little girl's earrings were studs. They were studs. little flower studs. So
1: earrings of all kinds. So it wasn't like mm-hmm. if you were walking down the street and had flashy dangly earrings, you'd be a target. Right.
0: Maybe the it earrings was. were also going to come back into play. Oh man. Okay. I know. All right. You're I'll jumping play. the gun on me. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Not sorry. Uh. <laughs> so. Um, some of the earrings match Charlotte Lamb. Um, in 2006, the motion was granted to go ahead and retry him along with these newly identified victims, and Rodney went back on trial in 2010. There's a huge gap of time between here because he fights off the trials with different motions and objections for a long ass time.
1: But he, because attorney though not he like decides a to body.
0: serve as his own attorney. Oh my god. <laughs> Right as I was saying, because he didn't pull a Ted Bundy, did he? <laughs> he pulled he a Ted totally Bundy. Did. Okay, did he, and so he didn't have any. The hilarious whole... thing is, like, so while the murders are happening, Ted Bundy is happening during the same time. But this is in 2010 at this point. Right. So Ted Bundy has already done his trial and acted as his own attorney. I'm not so sure that he didn't just take a page out of his playbook and think like, "Oh, I'm gonna do that too."
1: Obviously, he didn't read to the end of the playbook where it didn't work out for Spoiler,
0: Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy went to prison. But to his credit, this guy has the IQ of a genius. So while like actually, yeah, like oh. actually. I read that he had reportedly said that he, like, that was a self-assessment. Like, I, I have the IQ of a genius. But he was tested. There's some contradictions about, like, what the actual score is. But either way, the low end to the high end, both of them test in the genius category. Wow. So he is a genius. Um, so that is something to keep in mind. But he does decide to act as his own attorney. And he fixates on the Robin Samso case and doesn't really address either of the other four victims. So while he is fighting to prove his innocence with this one, he mm-hmm. kind of forgets about the other four. He offers an alibi for the Samso case saying that he was at the Knott's Berry Farm, but he doesn't offer any type of alibi for any of the other cases. He only says that he doesn't remember murdering them.
1: That's it. That's, his, that's literally it. That's what he's hanging his hat on. I, I don't remember.
0: Yeah. Um, He actually ends up taking the stand and he says that Robin's earrings are his own. Stop. The little flower studs. He says that they're his own. His sister got them for him. But he can't explain how Charlotte Lamb's DNA ended up on the other pair in his locker. And those ones I am almost positive that the clip that they showed of him holding up earrings in the 48 hour documentary I watched are hers. And they're like big chunky dangly type earrings. So it's It's not like he was wearing them.
1: Right.
0: But, um, this is the 70s. We're not nearly as accepting at that point of men wearing big dangly earrings. You do you all day long now, but. (laughs) And even then, I don't think you would have been, I don't think he would have been walking around wearing flowers, studs either, but he says that they're his. Were
1: his ears even pierced?
0: He says that they were pierced and that he was even wearing the earrings in the dating game. Was he?
1: Can't tell. His hair's covering his his ears.
0: Can't tell. Um, But they did say that he might have been wearing like gold ball studs or whatever. Um, But the earrings were flower earrings. Anyway. He acts super bizarre during these trials. He cross-examines himself and changes his voice depending on, like, what character he's playing at that moment.
1: Oh, wow.
0: So when he's acting as his own attorney, he will address himself as Mr. Alcala, like in the third person, and deepen his voice as the attorney. And then he answers the question. <laughs> he answers the question in his own voice. answers himself in his own voice as himself. So he did just you? acts really freaking bizarre.
1: And they let him do this. They're not like, sir, yeah. are you okay? Or do you.
0: The no. fact that nobody has like questioned his sanity, although he did have several experts like psychiatrists and everything like that that gave all of their own diagnoses about multiple personality, narcissism, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Basically diagnosed as having a serious personality defect, but not necessarily that he's crazy.
1: Just like, you're weird, you do this kind of thing
0: where you... Like, you're a psychopath, but you're not insane. Right, you know
1: what you're doing, you're well aware
0: of what you're doing. You're just dead inside. The jury deliberates one day and finds him guilty on all counts of murder.
1: You know what? I just found out that when a jury goes to deliberate, they have to spend about 30, 40 minutes just reading the instructions, again, out loud, Uh and they have to point a four-person if they haven't already. Mm-hmm. And they have to go through every single question that is being asked of them and make sure that they're only answering what is being asked, right? Right. So... So when that they say, like,
0: time. Right, a jury deliberates for one hour, they're right. actually, like, deliberating for ten minutes. <laughs> right. So
1: they've already made up their mind going in. There's right. no feverishly back and forth, I think this, or let's think about that. Right. The day isn't that short. It isn't that long either. We've seen juries out for weeks at a time. They probably just took that long because of Maybe how Maybe took a there lunch was. break. And they're like, you know what? I want to stay in a hotel tonight. Let me get a little pizza and service. Well, this is
0: the third freaking time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm just anyway. saying there's
0: a lot to go over. <laughs> they have to look into a lot, but, they have, but a day is not that long. Right. So he's found guilty on all counts. And then during the penalty phase, which I think is just like a fancy way of saying the sentencing phase. Oh, okay. This is another, like, crazy part. During the penalty phase, the sentencing phase, a.k.a., Tally Shapiro actually takes a stand to testify against him. Because she is a bad bitch. I literally, I live for this. So the little girl who was eight years old at the time of the attack, now as a grown-ass woman takes the stand to testify against him. I, was like, I want to make sure you go down. Yeah.
1: I want to make sure they know that this is not your first time. it wasn't your last time, you've done this before. And
0: he Fuck yeah, actually awesome. ends up owning what he does and he apologizes <gasps> to her. She says she doesn't even remember him apologizing because remember at this time he's acting as his own attorney so he can cross examine. He apologized to her. She says she doesn't even remember. She blocked it out. She When she was asked if it changed anything or if it had any effect on her, she said, hell no because <laughs> that's <the> right <laughs> and she testifies against him exactly what happened to her when she was eight years old what a strong person to do to i that. just mm, girl
1: to not only retell it but with conviction
0: i'm sure honestly is this is what you did well and she remember as a kid she didn't get the chance to do this because her family left and move to sh- mexico
1: Oh, that's right. So it's
0: like almost like this full circle moment of like, this was the moment that she's literally waited her whole life for and she finally gets to have it.
1: Wow. Closure for sure. Totally.
0: Yeah. It's just, mm, gives me all the feels. Good for
1: her. I know.
0: I know. But I'm going to bring you back down from this feeling. (laughs) Oh, this is such a
1: good feeling.
0: Um, (laughs) He closes his argument by playing a song called Alice's Restaurant. Stop and plays a song
1: literally plays the, the, the song
0: is like screaming this line that's like i want to kill i want to kill i want to kill over and over and over again
1: in the court
0: in the courtroom it's just like super Wait, with creepy. A judge and everything judge jury the whole gang is in there they're like they're wrapped up they're done they're like dude you're done and he's like i'm gonna seal the deal and i'm gonna play a song about how i want to kill
1: He's literally like, you know what? For my closing arguments, I'm going to need you to bring the AV card in here. I have a, I
0: have a song to play. Because. Well, and Robin's brothers were like, all you could think about listening to the song. It was like he was screaming at you that he wanted to kill people. Like it was wow. him singing the song. So it was like super creepy, very murdery. I'm pretty sure it just like basically convinced everyone that he needed to die in prison. He ended up being sentenced to death again. In March of 2010, for the third time. At that same time, police released 120 of his photos from the storage locker. 900 of them were withheld because they were too sexually explicit. 21 of the women have come forward to identify themselves. Six families have come forward to identify loved ones who who disappeared but were never found. I'm sorry,
1: oh, from those pictures? From the pictures.
0: So 21 women identified themselves as girls in the photos. So they're alive and well. But six families came forward and identified loved ones who, were disappear, who disappeared but were never found. 109 photos remain posted online pending identification to this day.
1: Wow. Do we know if these are all, well I guess we don't know where they're from, but do we know if the majority of the women who self-identified or were identified by families are
0: California residents? Oh, we were going to lead into that. I swear Ah. it's like you read my notes first. She didn't, by the way. I've been sitting on these. In 2011, New York also indicted Alcala for the murder of Cornelia Cryley, a flight attendant who was killed in 1971, and Ellen Hoover, the Ciro, I think it's pronounced Ciro, heiress. She was murdered in 1977. Both were murdered in New York. He originally pled not guilty and then changed his plea to, uh, to guilty in 2012 so he could return to California because New York was holding him on extradition. He was sentenced to 25 years to life in New York. The death penalty isn't an option there. The judge in this case, though, um, Judge Bonnie Whitner, she. Uh, the women in this case are just. Mm, Badass. Ladies. Okay, how do you start a club? Did. I don't deserve to be part of this club, but if you start a fan group, I will be your fan. (laughs) Because these are just, like, the... New York judge? Yes. These women are so... They're so badass. Okay. So, the judge in this case, she actually, like, sobbed during sentencing. The families talked about how much it meant to them that she was, like, so emotionally invested in this. And she said that this was the kind of case... Um, that is something she would never experienced and hoped to never again. She said, I just want to say that I hope the families find some peace and solace. She <laughs> called his crimes inexplicably brutal and horrific.
1: Wait. So speaking of that, did he ever explain or has he ever spoken out about that?
0: About why? Yeah. Mm-mm. Not that I ever saw or not okay. that anyone cared to mention.
1: So as far as we know, he's who was all over the board so you oh, we're not sit. done oh,
0: man in 2010 seattle police named him a person of interest in the unsolved murders of antoinette whitaker 13 who was murdered in 1977 joyce gaunt 17 who was murdered in 1978 um, but he was never convicted of those crimes he was also connected to the 1977 murder of pamela jean lamson of san francisco she was 19 and 28-year-old Christine Ruth Thornton, who disappeared in Wyoming in 1977. Wyoming. Yes. Um, I feel like it's really important in these cases, like, I wanna make sure every single person gets named on this um, that was a victim or potentially a victim. Um, The ones that they've said that they've linked to him but they have not been able to actually, like, convict him of, they, without fail, like, all the departments have said they have overwhelming evidence Um, but extradition, all those different things. There's too many moving parts. Right. And different things that they've said, it's pretty obvious that he is the one that did this. So they all
1: follow his MO. Right.
0: These women were killed in the 70s. Right. And it was 2011 when they finally were able to press charges. And so that's a really freaking long time.
1: 34 years. So the families probably
0: want some answers or some closure. Or to have somebody held responsible and just, like, acknowledge it. Right. So, this one was such it was such a roller coaster for me because I thought after Tally Shapiro, I was like, "Okay, well, they they got him, it's done, and then you think after- Robin Samso, okay, they got him, it's done, but it just keeps going and going and going, and I do think that the police did their job in this, although it's hard to say, but the legal system failed here like. This indeterminate sentence or whatever, and parole boards continuing to release him when, as rehabilitated, when he kept reoffending, and then to overturn a sentence not once, not twice. How like how many times does this take?
1: Who's doing those, those assessments? That's what I need to know. Yeah,
0: which one of you out there is evaluating this kind oh. of things? I I want names. I want names. <laughs> but... You don't get to be in the fan club.
1: The sad part is, like you said, it's not that it happened once and we'll,
0: you know, chalk it up to it got through, but multiple times. So he is now on death row in San Quentin. Like, today? Yep. State prison. San Quentin State Prison. Guess who I'm writing? No, I'm just kidding. Don't you dare. (laughs) Um, Which we all know, San Quentin is home to just the cream of the crop. So a couple things I just want to touch on really quick um, with these the badass women that we've been talking about. Um, Robin Samso's mom, she when she did that uh, her interviews for the 48-Hour Mystery, uh, she said, which this one, like, full body chills. She said she wants to live one day longer than him. She's an old lady now. She wants to live one day longer than him so she can live one day without feeling or hearing the name Rodney Alcala in her mind. I was like... I know it like gives me shivers. I know, and she she brought a gun to one of the trials. That
1: shit would not fly now. Yeah,
0: I think it was either the first or the second one because they have Um. metal detectors now. Uh, She brought a gun with her and was planning on shooting him. She (gasps) said she said when she was asked, "Were you gonna shoot him?" She said, "I was gonna shoot him square between the eyes, but I couldn't get a clear shot." Yeah. She's savage. She fully intended on Oh, this. yeah. And who could blame her, honestly? I, no.
1: And the fact that she didn't even try yeah. is very
0: impressive. That's a lot of self-control. Uh, and Tally Shapiro pointed out that this should have stopped with her. Um, she said there never should have been as many other victims as there were, that she should have been the only one. And, and people should have recognized what he was when he I... did to her what he did. 34 months for raping and strangling and beating an eight year old. Who gets it that wrong? She said that there was an opportunity here, but the justice system failed. So, that is the story of Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer. He was only identified as a serial killer after the third trial when all these other names got brought into it. So, not until like 2000. Not until the later 10, 2000s. 11? Right. Wow. Yeah. I did
1: not know that I I didn't know any of them. And
0: the crazy thing is that all this started in the 60s and it ended so recently. Like this chapter is closed hopefully hint hint hopefully for good. We don't we don't want a fourth time. No. We don't. No, no, no,
1: no, no. We don't need a fourth. Not another trial, but if the opportunity is
0: available for
1: families to...
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, keep... bring charges. Keep trying and, him on the new ones. Absolutely. But we don't need to keep retrying him on oh, Robbins. no, 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 no. Those are
1: definitely... We things. know he did it. Signed, sealed, and delivered. They... Do we know what kind of... What manner of death they've assigned him? Is that a thing in California? Is it a legal um, injection, or...? So,
0: he's on death row, but they haven't actually executed anybody in California in years. Oh. So... He's Robin's not, yeah, he's volunteers. going to die on death row. He's not, he won't be executed, unfortunately, okay. unless something really serious happens in the state of California and, like, things just go crazy down there, Which, but not even they're not going to. Okay. So, yeah, he's probably going to die on death row. That's the, that's a crazy story. I didn't know all
1: that. So, but, in total, can you go back and tally? Do we know, is there a number? I guess we don't know a for sure number. We don't.
0: Right? Yeah, so that depends. Do you want a number based on how many he's been convicted of or how many they think he has? Well, there's so many
1: things because the girls in the pictures, do we know?
0: It's hard to know as well, like, with the girls in the pictures, how many are actually victims because 20-something came forward and said, hey, that's me in the picture, but not necessarily that he did anything. Right. I think it was more so, like, he would take these photos and try and, like, assess and decide like their potential victims. Also, he had a lot of pictures of underage girls in sexually compromising positions, so... And you said these pictures are available online, the ones that haven't been identified or haven't come forward? Right, they are available online. Police are still looking for them to be identified. CBS has them on their website. Um, They can be Googled as well, and just, like, Google the Rodney Alcala photos.
1: What I want to know is, and, and this is just for... My sake of knowing are these pictures that the girls know are being taken, like the girl at the beach, or are these pictures that he's taking from far away with like most
0: of them are posed.
1: Oh wow! So in a closed environment, not from, you know, with a long lens or anything. Right.
0: And remember, the ones that were released, it's only a small handful because the majority of them are too sexually explicit to release to the public.
1: Right. So the ones that I'm looking up, for example, there's a girl in a bathing suit. With rollerblades? Like she's looking out into the distance. She came forward. Okay. So these look like nothing being held against your will at least the ones that are public right right? they're ones where he's like i'm a photographer i'm gonna play this up so i can get pictures of you
0: right because what he did is he would say like oh i'm a photographer let me get pictures of you and then say you know this or that come to my apartment these kind of things or whatever and but yeah he's a monster
1: oh now i see
0: but if you pictures of If him. you look at pictures of him now when he's mm-hmm. older, his hair's all grown out, super curly gray, and just yeah, he looks like such a monster. So that is the story of Rodney Onkelle, the dating game killer. There's a lot. There's a lot that happens at different times. So like and comes to light at different oh, times. Right, it that's thank you. That's a good way of saying it. Yeah, it, there's so much that happens in the past that comes to light later on down the road that you're like you're constantly back bouncing back and forth between timelines. It's just ugh, crazy. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> we would love to hear suggestions from you guys about what you want to hear about next. So you can find us on Instagram at a Stranger Danger Podcast. You can email us at Podcast at gmail.com. And you
1: can find us on Facebook under Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. And remember, don't get into cars with strangers who offer you free pictures. See you next week for more Conspiring. Bye-bye now.